Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by SaferWorld, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. In this episode, we look at women's coalitions in Sudan. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at SaferWorld. And I'm Rayan Nimir, Policy Advocacy and Communications Manager at SaferWorld. For decades, Sudanese women have been struggling and fighting for their rights using different approaches and techniques to influence policies and practices. Throughout the history of women's movement in Sudan, there have been several women bodies, alliances and coalitions working to make women's voices heard and advocate to attain their rights. After the military coup last October, women were back again on the front lines protesting military rule. Safer World in Sudan has conducted a research study to evaluate the Sudanese women's coalitions and to look closer at the challenges they face and opportunities available to them in a post-revolution context. In this interview, we talk to Reem Amir, the research consultant, to reflect on the research findings and share some practical ideas on how NGOs and donors can better support Sudanese women's coalitions and movement in their demands. For those unfamiliar with Sudan, could you briefly describe the factors that led to the 2018-2019 revolution? I think um, a revolution is a process. Um, things were building up for many years and until it happened. So, And there were so many different factors that led to it. Uh, the economic crisis, uh, Sudan's economy was has been was falling since 2011 and the situation became worse. Uh, and also different corruption scandals by government officials over the years escalated the grievances. You know, people felt that it shouldn't be this way. Uh, widespread crackdown on dissent. There were several protest movements in 2012, 2013, 2016, and 2018, and they were brutally suppressed. I mean, in 2013, in just three days, over 200 people were shot dead for, you know, taking part in the protest. So there was already a lot of anger and, uh, and um, you know, at the societal level. Civil society was restricted, severely restricted. Organizations were getting shut down. So many act- public activities were being banned. I think there was this feeling of suffocation. At the same time, there was conflict raging in uh, three parts of the country, uh, three regions, and it, uh, it was not ending. And it felt that the government was also investing in continuing this conflict. Uh, political deadlock. I mean, uh, Bashir was calling for elections in 2020. Uh, Bashir, who's the previous uh, president, um, and he wanted to run for presidency, and he was already there for 30 years. For many Sudanese people, 72% of people in Sudan are uh, under the age of 24, so they have only known Bashir, and they felt that this is unfair. They, this cannot continue. That for him to just remain in power, basically. Thanks very much. And what was the situation for women and women's-led organizations around this time? Throughout the three decades of uh, Omar al-Bashir's military rule, Sudanese women, I would say, they were targeted by discriminatory discriminatory laws. And with the exception of very few women who were part of the regime, they face exclusion, marginalization because of uh, the laws, because of the patriarchal and structural societal practices. Um, and at the same time, we saw that, uh, so basically women faced laws that restricted their presence in the public sphere. And they faced laws that basically discriminated against them in the private sphere inside their homes. And this and this really caused a lot of grievances. And at the same time, 
uh, talking about women's rights was very difficult. Organizations that worked on women's rights uh, struggled. Uh, in 2014, they shut down one of the oldest women's rights organizations, Salma Women's Resource Center. And then they continued to restrict many other organizations by basically um, not allowing them to register or really delaying their registration process. Many women who tried to organize in different places around Sudan in groups and associations were really not given the permits, to, the right permits to do so. So it was a situation where the only voice that was, um, the, and the only authority that was supposed to talk about women's rights was women who are part of the ruling coalition and all the other women uh, were unable to do so and were unable to work uh, on women's rights basically. So it was a very kind of state feminism kind of situation. So what role did Sudanese women play in the Sudanese revolution in 2018 and 2019? I think it's very important to note that women were always on the front lines since the 1989 coup. I feel that indicating that their presence was only in the revolution also undermines their role in the resistance. For 30 years, women were really on the front lines of the resistance movement in Sudan. They were sacked for the public good. They were arrested, beaten, prosecuted for their activism and political affiliation. Mothers were arrested when they protested against war in the 1990s. Women in the informal sector took the Khartoum governor to court when he passed an order to limit women's employment in the city. Women were part of the resistance as active participants all the time. They were also prosecuted under the last regime through various ways. This is why I would say it was very clear that women were definitely going to be the backbone. I call them the backbone of the 2019 revolution that ousted al-Bashir's government. Um, they were the majority they, of the protesters, and they played critical roles in different ways, mobilizing, coordinating protests uh, through the neighborhood resistance committees. They cooked for protesters while others protected the protesters from tear gas canisters. Women organizing groups and that protest at the sit-in in 2019. Um, in, at the sit-in in 2019, makeup artists led a march, for example, in support of the protest movement. And single mothers also had a very uh, lovely march where they basically marched to condemn the discriminatory laws that, den that denied them equal custody of their children. So women were there, they were active participants, and they were also bringing their issues to the forefront. Um, women had so many tools to resist. In March 2019, women activists began wearing a white tobe. The tobe is the traditional garment for many women in Sudan. And they began wearing it uh, as a symbol of solidarity with the protest movement. So they were, you know, resisting in so many different ways and so, so many innovative and creative ways, actually. Thanks so much. Having it all laid out, it, you just realize how amazing they were. I'm interested since the revolution, to what extent have women's movements been able to capitalize on this and sustain their revolutionary spirit and momentum to expand their movement and increase their political participation? I think this is definitely a difficult question because I feel that uh, unfortunately women's political participation remains very limited. But um, when, when we talk about women on the streets and women's continued presence in the public spaces, it has definitely increased. So I feel that women have been able to capitalize on this and sustain the revolutionary spirit through organizing in groups and networks and organizations and, and, and different very grassroots, very organic, uh, I would say, groups, you know, that are working on the issues that matter to them. 
So we saw so many women all over Sudan organize, you know, like the 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 women's for a platform in uh, in Kasela, like uh, the she initiative in the Red Sea state, the Darfur women uh, platform in the Darfur region, a uh, Thuri, a feminist, uh, you know, organic, uh, you know, movement in uh, in South Darfur. You know, in Blue Nile, we saw uh, Wari, Wari, an organization that is working with women, especially like women farmers and women uh, who are vulnerable. Uh, we saw so many women organizing all over Sudan, you know, and wanting to work with other women and feeling that this is the time for them to to to, to rise. And this is the time for them to really secure their rights and that this is the time for them to to change the like the trajectory of their life, you know, because for so many years they were unable to organize. They were unable to 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 really amplify their voices. So now they were able to organize and do so many different things. Uh, women were also very much present uh, at the neighborhood uh, resistance committees, and they are the committees that are leading uh, the protest movement that continues in Sudan, because Sudan has been basically um, in a state of resistance for the last three years. Uh, they are very much active in the resistance committees. We see them as spokespersons. We see them, see them as community organizers. We see them as uh, women who are writing and and sharing uh, statements online. Uh, so and and as a result of that, even though political participation has not really increased for women, but there are so many women leaders that are now known all over Sudan because they were the revolution kind of gave them a chance to shine and a chance to really speak to their communities and and build their leadership capacity. And I think this is very important. Do you think Sudanese women have been fairly recognized after the revolution? Uh, how and why? Absolutely not. I mean, unfortunately, I have to say absolutely not. Uh, women became the periphery, basically, of the transition. They were in the periphery of the transition due to patriarchal political parties and state institutions that have continued to exclude women for decades. For example, if we take the governing, the previous governing coalition that was in power for over two years, the forces of freedom and change, how many of its higher council uh, are women? Or how many of, it, of the members of its higher council are women? I mean, the roles rotate and the, and the, and, um, the council is not, um, they keep adding people and so on. But uh, at, at a certain point, uh, it was mostly three women and 20 men. So where is uh, where are women basically? You know, uh, only two women were part of the sovereign council, which is the head of state out of eleven members. Uh, four female ministers in the council of ministers. Uh, so less than twenty-five percent of the seats were given to women, even though the constitutional declaration stipulated forty percent representation. I have reservations on the forty percent rep representation, but even forty percent was not a possibility. We saw two female governors out of 18 governors. Not only that, the biggest problem was not only that women were underrepresented, it was also that the women who were selected, nominated, appointed to be uh, in leadership positions were continued to face hostility and harassment. The governor in River Nile State, as an example, faced a lot of hostility from the traditional authority. Um, so this was really very, um, it, it was even very, I would say, damaging and scary for the women that w would have wanted to be in leadership positions. Um, so after the fall of the regime, we saw low levels of participation at all levels. 
and um, it was and if we examine this political context in Sudan through the lens of Alex Dewal's political marketplace theory, in which he's basically saying that the political marketplace is organized in a place like Sudan that where loyalties and political capitals are sold in exchange for power and access to the marketplace, then there is a very there are very limited ways to to enter the marketplace. So as so you have to be part of the military, the military junta, and there are very few women in the military, and the ones that are there are not high-ranking officers. Uh, secondly, you have to be part of the native administration. Again, women are very much excluded from the native administration because power is passed down from generation to, to the other, and it's passed down from men to men, basically. Finally, uh, political parties are part of this mar- marketplace. Women don't have enough leadership roles in the political parties in Sudan. Due to the structures of the parties, many of the parties are sectarian, and women don't really occupy religious positions, also because um, there are conservative social norms, which limits the movement of women in general. So it's not an easy answer. Um, women were excluded, yes, we can say that, but the reasons are very much are very deep. So it's very un- un- understand it's very important to understand that women's exclusion from power in Sudan is systemic and that this injustice is deeply rooted. And it's also very important to understand that so that we can contextualize the history of the women's movement and not put unrealistic expectations and burdens on the women coalitions that have appeared during and after the rev- uh, the, the revolution. Um, and you talk there about expectations. What what are the demands and what, what is the agenda of the Sudanese women's coalitions? The women coalitions don't really uh, have a unified agenda, if I may say. So the different coalitions, uh, even within the coalitions, they don't really have like a document or a guiding document that they identify as their agenda, like the agenda that brings together all the different members in this coalition. Uh, But in a way, there are different, I would say, thematic areas that they work on and that they identify as critical to, to basically advancing and realizing women's rights. So, uh, and because of course they're different, they represent different regions and interests, uh, but uh, more or less the coalitions mostly work on political participation, economic empowerment, uh, peace issues, because uh, conflict is a big issue in Sudan, fighting violence against women. So those are like the major uh, issues. Um, So all the coalitions that we discussed in the research prioritize political participation. Uh, Some viewed it as an overall objective, while others saw it as a tool by which basically women's political, uh, you know, women's rights are achieved, basically. Um, Political participation is very much important to many of the coalitions because uh, it has to do with the structure of the post-colonial state in Sudan, which is very much undemocratic. And to to ensure action and to ensure that your group is able to access resources, you have to have representation. And then also uh, women feel that their large scale presence during the revolution should translate into equal representation um, because they don't also want to feel used by the revolutionary forces and the ruling coalition. And also, I think there is a fear that the return of dictatorship in Sudan or the return of a religious-based uh, rule 
would basically um, make it very difficult for women to continue advancing towards their rights. So women wanted to be represented during the transitional period because they want to make huge advances when it comes to legal reform and so on during this transitional period to guarantee that there are no setbacks, you know, in the future, or at least that the setbacks would have kind of a minimal impact. Um, Another thing also that uh, that is important to note, violence against women is identified as a key agenda because violence against women is, uh, Sudan is very rife. It's, uh, it's basically perpetrated by the state, by individuals within even the, the, the different political parties and institutions. There are no laws to really protect women from violence, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's domestic uh, sexual harassment. Uh, so, and violence is, violence is, is really something that is very much deep because if women don't feel safe, then they don't leave their houses. And if they don't leave their houses, then they're not taking part in political party meetings. Then they're not active politically. Then they're not represented. And and, and, the, and then they're not going to seminars and workshops. So they're not building their capacities. So if women don't feel safe, they will really, it, it will definitely impact their representation. Economic empowerment is also a very critical issue. Economic empowerment is a critical issue because in Sudan, women are, are very much poor uh, because there are high, uh, high illiteracy rates for women and also high, um, many women drop out of school because of early marriage, because of so many different reasons, poverty in general. So, but the coalitions have different perspectives uh, on economic empowerment. In Eastern Sudan, for example, the coalitions were kind of delegitimized by the community for focusing so much on political participation and not the economic situation of women. So also when you're working as a as a women coalition in a country like Sudan, a very poor country, you're expected to focus on economic empowerment because it is a because women are very poor. You know, and when and when women are poor then and, and uneducated and and they face structural injustices then you are not going to, then they're not going to be represented at any level, basically. And this is why it's up to the educated women who occupy the different, uh, you know, coalitions to really be part of the solution and work with those women. So this is why we see a, a women coalition, for example, in, in uh, Eastern Sudan working on microfinance and revolving fund programs to empower women. Um, we also see that economic empowerment is a big strategy and for women in Western Sudan and Western Sudan, which is a conflict area. Uh, so it's definitely one of the priorities that um, that you have to empower women economically so that you can empower them at all different levels. What kind of risks and challenges and barriers that Sudanese women collisions are facing to achieve their demands? I think I would say, I mean, they faced very much similar risks and challenges that are faced by even the political parties and the civil society in Sudan. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is political instability. I mean, Sudan, we had the revolution 2019. We had a very unstable uh, transitional period for a period of two year, uh, to over two years where uh, there was insecurity in different places in the country, conflict. Uh, economic hardships, um, the COVID-19 crisis, of course, that affected all, all the world, but Sudan is a poor country, it really affected Sudan. So, and then uh, last year, six months ago, we had the coup, the military coup. So political instability, you can't plan and you can't really, 
you know, um, you can't really pursue something because, for example, you start planning and you start calling for legal reform with a specific, uh, you know, government official. And then this government official is no longer there. And then the entire, you know, infrastructure is no longer there. So political instability remains a huge challenge in Sudan because with because due to political instability, you cannot have a strategy that works. Due to political instability, there is always political polarization between the different groups. And the political by political polarization, I mean that um, when think when something like the military coup happens, for example, you have uh, coalitions that have members in political parties and members in armed groups. The political parties and armed groups had very different perspectives on the military coup that some even did not call it a coup. And this automatically translated into um, disagreements within the different coalitions. So the coalitions are, are not living on an isolated island. They're very much affected by this political instability that is happening in Sudan. The second thing is the economic situation and women's poverty in general. And here I want to tie it to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, Sudan is suffering from serious hardships. And by serious hardships, I mean that the, the women coalition members sometimes cannot afford to meet because they cannot afford transportation because transportation is becoming expensive and people are really struggling to eat. So it's very much difficult for for women to to have resources to to take part in public work to take part in meetings seminars and so on um so and this is a very very huge concern you have coalitions that are regional like for example in eastern sudan and western sudan uh, it's very difficult to build regional coalitions because it requires you to work it requires the members to 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 travel to travel, meet each other, organize meetings. But if they can't afford to do that because the tickets, the flight tickets, the bus tickets are expensive, then the coalitions will not be able to sustain themselves. And this is so the economic situation is playing a very critical role and is a huge challenge uh, for, for women coalitions. And of course, the COVID-19 crisis really exacerbated this because it caused more poverty in Sudan. It caused inf serious inflation. Uh, right now, with the, the conflict that is happening in, in Russia and Ukraine, again, more inflation, uh, more food insecurity. So so I feel that the situation in Sudan is very difficult, and it's making it very difficult for the Sudanese women coalitions to engage. Um, lack of access to funding, I mean, the, it's holding workshops, doing so many things requires funding because the women cannot self-finance the coalitions. You do have some members who are better well off and they pay regular, you know, like membership fees, but the majority, unfortunately, they cannot, uh, they cannot contribute because they themselves are struggling. And this is why, for example, many of the coalitions, sometimes they have, they collect money to support some of their members if they have an accident, if they have a health problem, if they have anything that requires support. Um, some of the risks also and the challenges that are facing uh, the Sudanese women coalitions, and here I'm talking about internal challenges, is um, is basically not agreeing on what they should be doing, not having the same perspective on the common agenda. So sometimes a lot of the work is delayed because there are internal disagreements on what should be done. People have very different opinions and perspectives, and especially when you have groups and you have political parties that are part of coalitions. Political parties, political party members will never 
you know, prioritize their membership in the coalition over their membership in the political parties they represent, even if the political parties they represent do not really support the realization of women's rights. And this is a very big problem and challenge that sometimes leads to even members leaving the, the coalitions because they feel that it does not represent their interests anymore. And I feel like you've started to touch upon this across some of your answers already, but I want to drill into it a bit more. Like, What are the differences between women's coalitions and movements at a subnational and national level? I think there are definitely a number of differences, okay? Uh, the first, the, the, but I would start by asking a question. Why did regional coalitions start in the first place? Um, like, for example, the groups that, are, that have started in Western Sudan and Eastern Sudan. Because the national groups that are based in Khartoum, they do have members from all over Sudan, and also they have branches in different parts of Sudan. So there's obviously a disconnect. Obviously, the, the, the women who are in Eastern and Western Sudan do not feel very much represented by the groups uh, based in Khartoum, uh, even if it has members from their regions. So, so it was started because they felt a disconnect. They felt that they have the right to also speak and people don't have the right to speak on their behalf. They want to be part of the process because for a very long time, all the opportunities when it comes to training, capacity building, went to the women groups in the center. So women who are not part of this, the women groups in the center, also felt that they were left out by trainings, by adv advocacy opportunities, by just very different opportunities. So, so the regional groups were kind of formed because there was a need for the women to focus on the issues that are relevant to them and for them to also be part of this of this dialogue. Um, so so basically this is one of the this is one of the issues. The other thing I would say that Sudan never had a national women's movement. I mean, over its history there were different groups that were started in different places in Sudan. Um, from the 1920s we saw presence of women groups in Medani. And then we saw the Sudanese Women's Union, uh, you know, start in the 1950s. And then it had chapters in very, a lot of places in Sudan. But there was never a national women's movement simply because Sudan was very unstable. We continued to suffer from dictatorships. And as a result, uh, the country was uh, very much always ruled by, uh, by an authoritarian regime. And under authoritarian regimes, uh, the women's rights dialogue was very much controlled and monopolized by the central regime. They controlled it through starting their own women branches or women wings or women associations. So it's like state feminism, basically. It's some kind of state feminism. And they monopolized the conversation and the work on women's rights and disempowered all the other groups that talked on women's rights and disempowered them through detention, arrest, shutting them down, banning them, disbanding them, and so on. So basically, this really meant that there's really no sustained legacy of women organizing in Sudan. And by sustained legacy, I mean that many of the groups would start and then they would get shut down by the, by the government and then they would try, try to start again. So, 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 so this like accumulated kind of experience, this accumulated kind of work and, and strategies was just not there. And this is also another reason for the frag fragmentation. Um, the other thing is also that there's so many differences between the different regions. When it comes to education, for example, Eastern Sudan really lags behind. When it comes to uh, conflict, Darfur has been in conflict for the last 20 years. 
So this really means that there are so many discrepancies between women in different parts of Sudan. And this is why the representation becomes an issue, because if the women are from one part, mostly uneducated or struggling with so many different things, such as poverty, malnutrition, and so on, and the women in another region are struggling with everyday conflict, then basically their presence in the women's uh, groups is not as active as women who are come from more you know, stable parts of Sudan. So this is definitely one of the reasons. So uh, to what extent do you think women's coalitions at different levels are able to connect and coordinate? I think um, at some level, definitely they're able to connect and coordinate because like I said, there are so many issues that they, that they collectively focus on. So uh, most of the coalitions, whether it's in Eastern, Western, and even at the national level, work on peace issues. Um, so they had uh, they sent uh, members to take part uh, in the Juba peace talks as they were happening. They some of the groups in Eastern Sudan work at the local level because there are um, communal there were instances of communal violence in Eastern Sudan. Uh, so they do work together in the sense that they coordinate and they work together on issues thematic issues that are relevant to their work, whether it's political participation and peace. And also you do see that there are some members who are part of the national, uh, you know, uh, the national coalitions and that are also part of the regional coalitions. Uh, maybe because they live in the capital, maybe because they live in different places or because they have different networks that allows them to be part of different coalitions. And especially women who are in political parties, they're usually in, polit- in, co- in coalitions that represent political parties and they're u- and also in coalitions that represent other groups and other interests. But at the same time, there's also uh, challenges when it comes to coordination between the women coalitions. Um, one of the challenges in Sudan is this, um, the Ostad regime or women who were part of the Ostad regime are very much stigmatized. And, and by, by, by saying being part is affiliation, attending a meeting, just any kind of perceived, it's, sometimes it's a perceived affiliation with the, with the Ostad regime, uh, means that you would be stigmatized and you would be kind of, um, you know, isolated from the women coalitions. So there's so many issues basically that sometimes affect coordination is that there are accusations from different uh, uh, coalitions that they have members in the previous regime and that they have members of the previous regime that is that uh, that is a political party that is now banned in Sudan. So so this caused a lot of polarization between some of the groups, and this caused a problem between one of the coalitions. Um, ethnic and regional dynamics as well. I mean, uh, unfortunately, you still have, you know, um, this awareness that ethnic issues are very much uh, like, uh, part of the political conversation in Sudan. Uh, ethnic um, differences and regional differences are very much part of uh, the polarization that is happening in the Sudanese political arena. So you do have groups that uh, when you do, like when you dig down, um, they have, repre- like they don't have uh, true representation of all the different groups in the states or the regions they represent because of um, implicit biases towards uh, different communities and different ethnic groups. And sometimes you have uh, this ethnic polarization that is happening at the, co- at the communal level. So for example, there's communal violence, there's tribal violence in some parts, and this impacts the coalitions and this impacts the groups. 
it translates into sometimes mistrust between the members. It translates to uh, hostility. Sometimes it doesn't affect the members, but it affects the entire community. So the community itself becomes broken. You know, the social fabric is becomes damaged, especially when there is deadly violence. And this seeps into the, the coalitions and it seeps into civil society in general because humans are humans at the end of the day. Um, so, so this is definitely, there are so many challenges, especially that uh, Sudan itself is, is, is a challenge. You know, there's so many, violence is very much widespread. Ethnic violence and communal violence is very much widespread. Political instability plays a role. And, uh, and the lack of, um, and the lack of basically of, um, of a solution, this kind of political deadlock that really weighs down so many people and makes them, um, I would say, frustrated at the situation and they turn this frustration uh, into sometimes negative uh, feelings and negative actions. Thanks so much for the whole, all of this, this whistle-stop tour of all women's struggles in Sudan. I guess for my final question, I, I want to ask like, now what? Like what has the military coup changed for the reality of Sudanese women's coalition's journey towards peace and equality and justice? I would say, um, I mean, there is a feeling of fr frustration. I will start with that. So start with the negative first. There is a feeling of frustration because um, the entire community in Sudan and women have given a lot, you know, for this, uh, for the revolution. They have given a lot for this political change. You know, arrested, getting arrested. We have female martyrs. We have women who faced uh, uh, rape. We had gang rapes at the, at the sit-in that happened in June 2019. So the cost was very high, you know, and knowing that the cost is very high and that there is a huge setback, like the that, such as the military coup that happened, that took place last year, is very, is very frustrating for women. Um, after the coup, people continue to be in the streets. People are still on the streets in Sudan. I mean, people in Sudan have been on the streets for the last three years, actually. Uh, and they see the revolution as a process, as a never-ending process, as, as part of their life, as, as a journey. They don't see it as just a one-off event. And this is why they have managed to sustain, to very much sustain the, the revolutionary momentum. Um, and since the, since the military coup, we've seen even more violence on women. We've seen more violence on women, and we've actually seen this backlash on women since the revolution because it was almost as if part of the community wanted to punish us for being, for daring and for being on the front lines of the revolution, for being on the streets, you know, that you are not good girls, you know, you, you did this and now you have, to, you have to be punished. And this is why we saw a backlash against women on the streets. We saw a backlash against women at the societal level in terms of the society was becoming um, I wouldn't say more conservative, but the society was becoming very much difficult with women. Uh, we've seen any woman leader who who is known would face a lot of hostility and harassment. So this was very much uh, systematic, you know, that they were punishing women and there was this feeling that women are being uh, punished for being in the revolution. And right now we have to put them back in their corner. So 
this continued. And then after the military, things got worse because we saw um, sexual violence. It's again being used as a tool to silence women because they continue to be an instrumental force on the street. Uh, we saw more insecurity, uh, women feeling unsafe to, to go around in the evening. We Armed robberies are happening in different parts of the capital. We don't feel safe on the streets anymore. Um, there was this incident a few months ago that really, um, I mean, it's it was an incident that really spoke to many women. It was there was a woman that was uh, uh, she was on a she was a, she was a student. She's very young. She was on a bus and um, they and uh, some men basically in uniform. We still were still not sure what kind of uniform. They stopped the bus and they and the woman was singled out and she was subjected to sexual violence. And I feel, so this feeling of insecurity is very much felt. Um, but uh, the only way is for just women to, to continue being part of the solution. And the only way for women to to just continue being part of the of the political dialogue. Because, because when we are part of the political violence, we automatically lessen the violence. Because we speak with words, we speak with actions, we speak, we speak um, with like throughout the struggles of our communities we don't speak with violence and this is what is happening at the political level in sudan that automatically there are threats to use violence we don't do that and i feel that this is why we could really help quieten things down in this country we could really help bring some kind of peace to this country at the political and at the societal level speaking to the international community why international community have to support women coalitions? And what are the main priorities that the international community need to know to support women's coalitions in Sudan? I think a lot of work is needed. I feel that um, a lot of capacity building is needed. I mean, we do see that women still need a lot of support when it comes to developing their own common agenda. And I feel that they know, like the women coalitions, they all know what they want, but there are different tools and there are different strategies that could be used to help them develop their agendas. So I feel that a lot of investment should be done on capacity building for women coalitions because many of the members in the women coalitions are actually um, women who have really not been um, supported in any trainings before. Uh, many of them have not really been trained before, especially when we talk about new, new, younger constituencies, younger women. They've really not been trained before. They need a lot of capacity building. The revolution for them was was uh, was um, like a university. They 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 learned a lot of things. They le learned a lot of things from experience, from practice. But there's a lot of theoretical tools that are very much important because. Starting a movement, starting an association, starting a group is something. It requires, um, it just requires you to be passionate. But sustaining it and making sure that you have goals and strategies that you want to achieve, this is where you need a lot of capacity building. Another thing is definitely advocacy, because right now it is Sudan is really at a crossroads, and we hope that um, things will move forward uh, and and that um, no no more you know that the killing will stop. But it's really at a crossroads where we feel that um, there is a, a lot of advocacy is needed by the international community to make sure that there is stability and peace in the country because women bear the brunt of this instability, whether it's facing sexual violence, facing violence in general, facing insecurity, because it affects their livelihoods. 
if it affects their ability to move and to go out and do and be part of the change process. Another thing that I want to to say, I want to send a message to Sudanese women coalitions. Um, the first thing they should do is prioritize building people. I building people is very much important because if you invest in building your members, uh, building their capacity, um, really just working with them, letting them shine, uh, learning their potential, allowing them to 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 really be part of the movements and the coalitions that you're building. This is really how you sustain a coalition. This is how you help the coalition reach its goals. And this is how you you kind of uh, attract this community consensus about the work and the issues that you're working on. The other message is uh, you you have to prioritize the the agenda of women over the agendas of your political parties and groups because this is the only way to move forward. Many women are part of political parties and it's important to have women in political parties because this is how they can be part of decision-making processes. When women do find themselves in decision-making positions, they have to prioritize the women's agenda. They have to give back to women because they were there and they are at this seat because women stood in the sun, chanted, they protested, they marched, they struggled, they were beaten for this to happen. So much work was done by women over the years on the streets to make sure that so many women are part of the political process. Do not fail them. You owe them a lot and they look forward to receiving a lot from you. Thank you. Thank you, Reem. That's all we have time for today. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Abigail Watson. And me, Rayan Nimir. Goodbye. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month wherever you get your podcasts by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.